1: the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Identity Crisis, the show about news and ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute. I'm Yehuda Kurtzer, president of Shalom Hartman Institute North America, and we're recording on Friday, October 1st, 2021, right off of the heels of the Jewish holidays back in anticipation of what might be a full work week. So if you follow Jewish news, and I do, and the show is oftentimes interested in it, we're oftentimes inundated with Jewish political stories. One of the big stories out of Israel this past week was an attack by a group of settlers, about 60 settlers, in the South Hebron Hills on a Palestinian village of Khirbet al-Mufakara, in which a three-year-old boy was injured, condemned by Israel's alternate Prime Minister Yair Lapid, condemned by the American government. And once again, a kind of story about Jewish radicalism and political violence in the news. In the meantime, here back in the domestic side, kind of got lost a little bit over the Sukkot holiday for those of us who observe it. Major question emerging in Congress around additional legislation to provide additional support for Israel to replenish the Iron Dome batteries after this summer's war which was initially opposed uh, almost exclusively by the progressive end of Democratic Party, and now is actually being held up in the Senate by Rand Paul, um, a Republican senator. And throughout this, a continued realignment by Jews and Jewish organizations around the changing political climate. This is something of a hobby of mine, and it's also a hobby of our guest today. I have oftentimes found myself looking for larger narratives to explain the Jewish political story. Why, uh, for American Jews, politics seems to live at the center of the Jewish condition, it certainly is the case uh, in the state of Israel as well. There's a theory on the landscape, and that is, my guest today is Professor Shaul Magid, who is the author of a really newly published book, I think it's already out, at least I have a copy, from Princeton University Press. The book is called Mare Kahana. The Public Life and Political Thought of an American Jewish Radical. Shaul is a professor of Jewish Studies at Dartmouth. He's a senior fellow here at the Shalab Hartman Institute in North America. And Shaul's book, which we're going to talk about today, argues that Kahana is a far more relevant influence on American Jewishness, and I assume in that context on the continued centering of a certain type of politics at the center of American Jewish identity, than he has long been considered. First of all, Shaul, thanks for... Thanks for coming on the show and start us off by just telling us a little bit, like personally and professionally, you, you're a little bit of a kind of omnivore of Jewish ideas and content. But why Kahana? Um, of all people, why spend the last, I think, six years reading everything that Meri Kahana wrote, reading everything else people wrote about Meri Kahana and trying to kind of fill this lacuna of scholarship by, by engaging with Kahana and his legacy?
0: First of all, thank you, Huda, for inviting me and showcasing the book. You know, it's interesting that you asked that question, the introduction to the book I titled Why Kahana? Because I think it is the kind of a question of why would you spend all your time writing about somebody and why write about him now? And I mean, there are there are more mundane reasons about how I discovered Kahana, which I talk about in the in the introduction to the book. A graduate student that I had at Indiana University that had read a section of a chapter of mine in American Post-Judaism on the Holocaust where I talked a little bit about Kahana and decided to write an MA thesis on history and memory in Kahana. And so we basically started the Havruta of looking at Kahana's writings from the early 1960s, 1962 up uh, to the present then and I had read some of his stuff before, but only by reading him chronologically did I come to realize that there, there's a, something going on about the way in which Kahana understood post-war America in particular, and the way in which I thought that his critique of liberalism, as Jewish liberalism existed in post-war America, particularly the 1960s, which is a little bit different than now, I think, was actually incisive and important in a way that has been overlooked, because when people think about Kahana, they immediately think about Israel. He did move to Israel in 1971, he founded a political party that was was then ousted from the Knesset because of racism law, and we all kind of know the basic history. But I felt that actually his way of thinking in the world really dug some deep roots into the American consciousness, separate from his tactics. And I think that one of the things I wanted to try to tease out in the book is that to think about Kahana as relevant today in America, you have to separate his worldview from his tactics. His tactics was militarism, his tactics were violence, but that was very much in the waters in the late 1960s among the Black Panthers, among the Young Lords. I mean, militarism and violence was something that existed from around 1965, 1966 until 1974. So in that sense, Kahana was very much a a person of his time, but his worldview... I found to be very much a part of the subconscious of some of American Jewry. Obviously not all of American Jewry. And I know that, uh, I know that you in particular don't like the term the Jewish establishment. Um, that was a term that he did like a lot. And maybe there was a Jewish establishment in the 1960s in ways that there isn't now. But that's the way he called it, right, in a certain way. I think that in a way Kahana is easier to deal with in Israel because he's right out front because you have people that still identify as Kahanists. Although I argue in the book that today's Kahanists are not really Kahanists, they're really neo-Kahanists, and I can explain why I think that is. But per- Kahana is a kind of persona non grata in America. Nobody talks about him, nobody nobody seems to think that he's still relevant, and I think that's where the danger lies, in that there's something in the subconscious
1: that, that exists. Great, so I definitely want to come back to the establishment piece, and I also want to come back to the this whole notion of persona non grata, because it actually, you could parse that data in two different ways. One is that he's really important and therefore we don't talk about him. And the other is that he's not that important. Uh, that's what I want to come back to later on. But let's, I want to start with something a little bit more personal. There are two, I felt reading your book, show that there were two, and I, you and I have talked about this for years. I've heard you present on Kahana. So it, it was also exciting to kind of see you know, you spend a lot of time thinking about something, talking with someone about it, and then to see it in print. So, congratulations on getting it out and getting it done. I think it's a, I think it's a really significant contribution. It's a, it's a book that I think a lot of people should read and get angry about. Kahana, not you, but Kahana. <laughs> but there were two personal pieces to it, and the first one that felt personal was you even make reference to the fact that you said I didn't know him personally, but but you describe kind of inhabiting the same world. So first, independent of Kahana. Talk to me a little bit about like what it's like to do the kind of scholarship where you know that you are kind of cooked in the same pot together with ideas like this. Like I also, you know, like for example, you make reference to a roommate that you, um, who was a Kahanist. I remember once when I was on an Israel trip, a B'nai Akiva Israel trip, they sent us to, you know, kids' houses for Shabbat and I go to this kid's house and I don't know, I think it was Bat Yam, you know, some beach town, a religious Zionist kid. And I come into his house and this is 1992, it's right around a time in Madrid. And my dad was negotiating Madrid on the American side. And I go into their house and there's this giant picture of Marikahana and that's like it was right right over the bed that I was supposed to sleep. We all have kind of personal angles when it comes to Jewish scholars who study these stories. Tell, Tell me a little bit about like what it was like for you to try to excavate something that you already felt in some ways adjacent to right? And what was challenging, or, or in what ways that gave you kind of access to this story that might have been different for a different scholar?
0: You know, it's funny, that story of that roommate, when I was living in Borough Park, and going to Yeshiva in Borough Park, living in Flatbush, and it was kind of very much a part of that the Haredi world. I mean, this guy was a modern Orthodox Jew, this Kahanes was a modern Orthodox Jew. In the 1970s, in the late 1970s, he was very much just a part of the landscape. I mean, it was... He was somebody that a lot of people knew. He was somebody that brought together, interestingly, people of very different kinds of religious persuasions, mostly within the Orthodox world. Charedim, yeshiva people, modern Orthodox people. There was something that was attractive in that world, which was struggling with, on the one hand, a sense of an inability to know how to respond to the political realities that were happening around them. And on the other hand, in a certain sense, quite... Angry at the inability to come up with a solution to how to confront the realities that were happening on the ground. I don't mean globally or nationally. I mean what's happening in Flatbush, what's happening in Borough Park, what's happening in Williamsburg, issues of anti-Semitism, and so on and so forth. So, in a certain way, he provided an answer that, in some way, seemed extreme. And on the other hand, seemed very rational, which is simply that if you're confronted with violence, you have to respond with violence. You have to fight back. I mean, why are are Jews not fighting back? Why are Jews not angry about the situation that they're in? And, you know, it's funny that I I knew Yossi Halevi back in those days when, you know, he had already left the JDL, but he was still very much part of that world in terms of how he thought about things. And in a certain sense, for me, I was a bit of an outsider right because i was part of the haredi world so i wasn't part of the Kahanis world and yet you know there was a kind of intermingling and the mixing between people in the Chaim berlin yeshiva i learned in yeshiva that was across the street from high berlin or in flatbush and other places where he was just his option his alternatives were were all very relevant and very relevant to me although i never kind of bought into it in a way i was never really attracted to it in fact I was living in that apartment with that roommate. It was actually a basement apartment of a house. You know, when I found his manuals of how to kill and I realized he had, you know, bats with nails and nunchucks, I went to the family that we were living with and I said, you know this guy Moshe, you realize what he's got downstairs? They eventually kicked him out when they realized it. It's funny that it brought back a lot of those memories for me. I just think that I wanted to bring out that in that world at that time, Kahana was very much a part of the, basically just the drinking water of that world, of that Orthodox world. But then it was like, no one ever read him. So that was the interesting thing about Kahana. Even the Kahanas didn't read him. Nobody really actually seriously read what he wrote. They listened to him talk. They went to his meetings. They went to rallies. He was a public person that wrote vociferously, right? And so I basically said, okay, let me actually read the body of work.
1: Right. Well, that's what's complicated about this book is that, as you say, nobody read him, even probably his greatest followers, you know, probably some of them had the books on the shelves, but people didn't really read him. You wrote a piece for our book for the New Jewish Canon about the Mer Kahana-Yitz Greenberg debate that took place in Riverdale in the 1980s. And what's lost in treating that as a transcript of a text is that kahana's magic was as an orator and if you actually you can watch this on youtube actually maybe we'll put it in the show notes for people to watch the video on youtube you know greenberg is orderly he's got his notes in front of him he's rhetorically strong because he has an ordered argument khan is gripping the podium and he's kind of a magnificent orator to watch the writings in some sense don't matter so you have this weird attempt to basically construct an intellectual history of a person whose ideas were really important but the written version of those ideas you know, may have been lost on a lot of people. Do you think that that gets in the way of like understanding Kahana? Like you make clear that this is an intellectual biography as opposed to a kind of social biography of Kahana. Did you find at times gaps between the experience of Kahana versus what it meant to actually kind of sort through his letters and his writings?
0: Oh, definitely. I mean, he was a person that if you watch his debate with Alan Dershowitz at Harvard is another kind of interesting one from 1985. He had a certain kind of oratory power where he was able to basically destroy people without really undermining their arguments per se. It's really a motive, right? But I think what I tried to do in the book is to say that there actually is an intellectual project there. And it's about fear of the Cold War and communism. It's about the counterculture. It's about radical political radicalism. It's about trying to, what he said, save the American dream for Jews in the diaspora. Which I think, you know, one of the fascinating things about Kahana in the early years is that it really wasn't about Israel at all. It was really about the diaspora. That's what he says in the JDM Manifesto in 1968. We're trying to save Jewry in the diaspora. It's a diasporous project that he eventually gives up on and then moves to Israel. But even when he moves to Israel, he's continually writing books in English to American Jews. He never gives up on America. And I think that a lot of things that he said. In the 60s and 70s and even in the 80s it continues to resonate with a lot of american jews the fear of perennial anti-semitism anti-semitism on the left is worse than anti-semitism on the right anti-zionism is anti-semitism i mean all of those things that we were talking about in 2021 he was talking about in 1972 the fear of intermarriage and assimilation the challenges and the dangers of liberalism for the survival of the jews i mean these are all issues that You know, we can sit around at the Hartman Institute and we can talk about it in a myriad, myriad ways. And he was talking about it at a time when nobody was really talking about it. Not in that way. anyway.
1: Are you a liberal Zionist? I know it can be complicated. How do we reconcile these seemingly disparate values? Our commitment to Jewish peoplehood demands that we take a leap of faith to tell a liberal Zionist story. Yesterday's answers won't work today. If you are a committed liberal Zionist who wants to ensure future liberal support for Israel, you must develop a discourse and narrative which is compelling for liberal Americans and Jews. I've outlined a roadmap in my essay, Liberal Zionism and the Troubled Committed. Give it a read today at sourcesjournal.org. The way you organize your book is that you essentially pick the major kind of themes of Kahana's thought, as well as the kind of major issue items that govern the public discourse of the 60s, 70s, and 80s, kind of Kahana's heyday. You have liberalism, race, communism, Zionism. Radicalism. 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 I I didn't on purpose leave out radicalism. We'll come back to radicalism. Yeah, that's
0: what they all say, right? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Um, So let's start with liberalism, because this is the second place, Shaul, where I want to probe a little bit to the extent that this is a personal book when it comes to the whole question of liberalism. I'll give you one of the quotes from your book in which you say, I think we err if we see Kahana's program as solely about Jewish militancy, although it was also about that. This is a a kind of echoing of what you just said. He sought to save the American dream for young American Jews. What I think he meant by that is that Jews could rise up and succeed while also retaining their distinct identity as Jews. And the true enemy of the Jews for him was not the black militants or white supremacists. Those enemies could be dealt with rather easily. The real enemy for Kahana was Jewish liberalism. Now, I hear in this a belief that the Jewish liberal project that American Jews saw as kind of essential to their thriving for a long time. Kahana thought that this was doomed to fail, that you quote Charles Liebman as feeling that this was doomed to fail. And I wonder whether you also kind of think it's doomed to fail, like that this attempt at Jewish liberalism as the, as the fabric of the American project just can't hold its weight. So I'd love for you to answer it on two fronts. Why does Kahana think it can't and whether or not Shaul Magid thinks it can <laughs>
0: I think Kahana thought that it couldn't because America was too attractive and that the American dream, which not only encouraged but in some sense required a certain kind of assimilation. Now, again, this is before multiculturalism, so he's a pre multicultural thinker. And I think that's really important the way in which multiculturalism changes the nature of the American society. But in a pre multicultural world, assimilation was going to basically destroy any legitimate reason to be Jewish. And by assimilation, I don't mean disaffiliation. I mean the way in which liberalism provides a template for living Jewishly in ways that are, as a recent colleague, de- deemed it thin religion. He wrote a book in 1973 about intermarriage. Why be Jewish? Who was writing about intermarriage in 1973? Very few people were writing about it, right? He, I think that he knew that intermarriage was going to become a norm and that the stigma of intermarriage was going to disappear because that is what it means to be an American. It means to be able to sacrifice one's particular identity for for the American dream. Now, again, as I said, multiculturalism changes that. So I think that he just felt that the success of Jews in America was going to be ultimately their demise. And that had to do not only on questions of religious life, because he wasn't particularly religiously sensitive in that way. He wasn't trying to the JDL was not a Kirov institute. It wasn't trying to make people orthodox. It was trying to make people proud of being Jewish in a certain kind of countercultural way. Right? I know that you you talk about counterculture and Judaism in a particular way. And he, he was also talking about it in a different time. Now in terms of me, I agree, but for different reasons. I think that my book American Post Judaism is the way I understand it a kind of radical intervention into rethinking the contours of Judaism in, in, outside of liberalism. That it really is in a certain way a reconstruction of Judaism that is radical and counters that thin religion that that people talk about. So In some way, you know, someone like Zalman Shakhtar Shalomi, who's really the centerpiece of American post and Mayor Kahana, they're both engaged in what I would consider radical reconstructive projects in very different ways towards different ends as well.
1: And this actually comes through in your chapter on radicalism because you kind of talk about the way in which... Left and right with their critiques become effectively unified, even if there are aspects of the policies that they're advocating for are directly opposite. Your example of Kahana's liberation seder and Arthur Wasco's freedom seder as essentially trafficking in the same terminology. They're doing the same project and trying to capture. I don't think particularism is the right word because I don't think what Wasco is doing is particularism, but it is some version of thickness, right, of a critique of liberalism and capitalism as at the heart of this project and trying to produce something else. Is that right? Is that how this kind of this kind of lands as a critique, that that's how it can manifest in the same way on the Jewish left as it comes out of Kahana?
0: Yeah, I, I think that, you know, very often you find that radical alternatives from opposite sides often end up sharing certain kinds of uh, basic approaches to the thing. I think that one of the interesting meeting grounds of radicalism between the right and the left in, in among Jews in the early 70s was the Soviet Jewry movement and the way in which Kahana took it over essentially from Yaakov Bernbaum, who was interested in diplomacy, who was interested in behind the scenes backdoor negotiations, and Kahana basically enters in in late 1969 and says, no, we basically have to engage in something that you know, that the Weather Underground engaged in. It's like, okay, you're going to basically press Jews in the Soviet Union. We're going to make your lives here miserable to the Russians, right? And what what ended up happening as a result of that? Soviet Jewry got on the front page of the New York Times. And that's exactly what he wanted. So in a certain sense, the radicalism is an intervention that doesn't ultimately offer the solution to the problem, but it brings the problem up to the surface and into the public sphere in ways that liberalism can't
1: what radicalism in that context does is it insists that one particular aspect of liberalism can abide and that is what you refer to in the book as incremental politics it basically says no i'm tired i don't want that and whether your version of radicalism is kahana's radicalism or the radicalism of the left it's just this frustration with anybody who insists on incrementalism at the center whether it's about soviet Jewry or whether it's about Jews getting beaten up on the streets, or whether it's about, you know, the ending of the occupation, right? I'm tired of incrementalism as pushing the ball down the field. I actually want to claim it. However, here's the part of the problem. Liberalism isn't just about incrementalism. Liberalism is, of course, about the vibrancy of the construction of the identity of the individual and the state as a mechanism to preserve that. And I felt reading this liberalism chapter as though there was something profoundly liberal about the way you define Kahana's project, which is if it's about retrieving the dignity of the Jew and fortifying that identity and thickening it, that in and of itself kind of sounds like liberal terminology. And as you acknowledge yourself, like there's something unquestionably American about what he's trying to do. In fact, he oftentimes talked about the language of rebuilding the American Jew. Don't be the Uncle Irving, which is Jewish equivalent of of an Uncle Tom. Isn't that, isn't that weirdly kind of its own version of a liberal project, what Kahana's engaged with?
0: In some sense, it is. I think I say a place in the book that as much as Kahana was, you know, claimed to be anti-liberalism, it was liberalism that made him possible. In other words, it's the liberal society in which he grew up in that allowed him to be a radical. I think that you're right. There are ways in which a much more nuanced understanding of liberalism, and I don't think he really had a much more nuanced understanding of a lot of the things that he talked about, which is why he was so popular because he's able to boil things down in some way to a pretty simplistic, you know, bottom line, at least publicly. That made sense to a lot of people. But yes, I think that that's true. And, And I also want to say that, generally speaking, I think the radical intervention against liberalism ultimately fails because it implodes on itself. And you could talk about that in terms of black nationalism, the Black Panthers and a number of other things. And yet it succeeds because it, ch- it changes the nature of the conversation, that radicalism succeeds not because the goals of radicalism succeed, but it has an impact on what the liberal conversation will be moving
1: forward. I mean, that just feels always like a little bit unfair. The way liberalism will defend itself against that radical critique is it will say what liberalism is capable of doing is domesticating the claims of radicalism. And moving them back into an incremental space. So if every, so like listen, if both sides declare victory, radicalism says I got you to move down the field a little bit, and liberalism says I got to move down the field a little bit instead of going all the way. Okay, that's fine, but it's kind of it's ironic that radicalism will claim a victory if it gets people's attention on an issue, even if it doesn't ultimately turn into a radical political solution.
0: Well, yeah, but then again, I think it's cyclical, right? So you have, let's say, Black nationalism and Malcolm X and the Black Panthers, right, who implode in the early 70s. And now you have, you know, critical race theory and Afro-pessimism and all kinds of other things. They are the children of Black nationalism. And it's another iteration of a particular radical intervention into the notion of racism in America that it sees itself in some way as a new iteration, a new layer of a kind of black nationalist intervention. Now, I think that in some way, you can see that in the Occupy movement. You can see that in Jewish progressive movements that are happening today where, okay, let's say, you know, if not now is another iteration of Breyra in a very different environment in a very different context. So they're always playing off each other. The question is, What happens if you have the liberalism without the radicalism? Does it actually move down the field?
1: Does it get anything done? Okay, so let's take a version of this as relates to kind of what you might call the Jewish identity industry over the last 30 or 40 years. There have been a great many educators, rabbis, institutions, including our own at the Hartman Institute, that is interested in thickening the identity of American Jews. Not necessarily transforming it, as Kahana might, but thickening its uh, its identity. Even we use the language, since we're essentially a liberal institution, of creating more compelling offerings in the marketplace of ideas. Right? It's actually a capitalist framing of how you create a thicker identity. But the Kirov movement, the, the outreach movement um, in orthodoxy, which really starts to grow in the 80s, and especially the 90s after the 1990 Jewish population study, is also interested in reclaiming some thicker deeper expressions of jewishness by american jews believes that you know america has become a steamroller of religious and particular identity of jews and needs to offer alternatives what's the version of that that doesn't fall prey to kahana's radicalism doesn't require his kind of racism although you resist that term a little bit in the book and that doesn't at the same time to your critique simply become wishy-washy liberalism can any of those claims on identity that are non-radical actually make make an impact.
0: I can think about it more on the Jewish left than the Jewish right, perhaps, with some of the ways that the Jewish progressive world has decided that its expression of thick Jewishness is through anti-Israelism, even sometimes anti-Zionism, or certainly like a harsh critique, of the realities so that in a sense what they're saying is yes we are the products of liberal america we're the products of the zionization of american jewry and now we're just expressing that in a way that you might not like so in other words yes we are the products of liberalism that have decided that the way in which to express that sickness is through critique
1: you have this line show in the book i thought this was like a good it was like a one sentence summary of kahana which was, he said, Judaism of pride is the option he offers a combination of religious nostalgia, muscular nationalism, and Jewish assertiveness. I was like, okay, I got all three. Now let me unpack them. Religious nostalgia, we'll come back to that a little bit. I want to ask you later on whether Kahana was sincere in the religion thing, (laughs) as you understand it. Muscular nationalism, okay, I think I understand that, and Jewish assertiveness. And yet, to your point that you just made, you could take those same three pieces and talk about the contemporary Jewish left just by changing one term, which is religious nostalgia, muscular anti-nationalism, and Jewish assertiveness. And then that's a pretty good read on what's taking place in a lot of sectors of the Jewish left today.
0: Yeah, and, and I think that's true. And on the other side, I think you can take the religious nostalgia, Jewish nationalism or muscular, whatever I said, and say, okay, that, that encapsulates a certain a certain growing segment of modern orthodoxy.
1: Do you buy it for Kahana as a real religious thinker? I mean, you acknowledge that he spent, what, 13 years at the Mir Yeshiva. You have, like a, I think, a two-page section on the influence of Musar, the Musar movement, and Kahana's thought. Eh, part of me was like, come on, religion is the terrain in which he's playing, but is there real religious sincerity taking place here, or is this, or is this something else?
0: I think that Kahana is not a religious thinker in America. I think he finds religion... Some time in Israel in the 1980s, and that's when he begins to write the, you know, Harayoni Udi, the Jewish idea, which is, you know, a book that I, yeah, I suggest is kind of a book of collective misery I think he becomes a, an apocalyptic thinker. So in that sense, I think he was sincere. I think he felt that, you know, that's what the book Forty Years is about that he wrote in Ravla prison, that we're approaching an apocalyptic end and everything is going to be destroyed. And He wouldn't be the only he wouldn't be the first Jewish thinker to to say that. I mean we can go back in the tradition of Jewish apocalypticism where there were a lot of people who basically made that argument. So I think that toward the end of his life he came to the conclusion that the Jewish state had to be destroyed because it had simply become a mirror of the American left. And in a certain way the failure of Zionism for him was that it didn't ultimately reject liberalism it absorbed it and it was going to fall prey to the same end in different ways because it's just Jewish society and it's a Jewish majority and all of those things. So I think he did take it seriously, but you have to think of him as an apocalyptic thinker, not as a kind of a serious kind of, you know, traditionalist thinker.
1: I mean, it kind of makes sense in the sense that like he fails as a political leader because he gets banned from the Knesset, but in some larger sense, His own capitulation to thinking what he was meant to be was a noble parliamentarian. That was a capitulation. Where you see Kahana alive today is in the kind of the hilltop youth phenomenon, which is deeply apocalyptic. And it's theological in a weird way, but it really believes that the state is fundamentally broken, not in those sectors of religious Zionism that venerate the state, because Kahana was certainly not one of those folks.
0: Right. So, you know, one of the interesting things about Kahana Zionism is that which is why I think that the, a lot of the contemporary people like Itamar ben gvir and people like that who identify with Kahana, is that um, Kahana had no interest in Rev. Cook. Interestingly, he almost never mentions him. In, the, in Harayoni, Ud, 800 pages, I think he's mentioned a few times. And the reason is that Kahana had no patience for the kind of mystical romanticism of Rev. Cook. And he had no patience for the synthesis between religion and the secular state. In a sense, Kahana was much more, he was interested in power. For him, religion meant power and it meant conquest. He was a kind of neo-biblical thinker in that way. The book of Joshua was much more important to him than the Babylonian Talmud. That's how he saw things. So what you see with contemporary Kahanists, not talking about the Hilltop youth, because I think they are more Kahanists is a kind of neo kahanism that brings together Cookian romanticism and Kahana's militarism. And in a certain way, it's even more dangerous, in my view, because once Svi Cook said that the state itself is holy, you create a certain kind of very volatile mix where violence becomes holy. And you see that in one way, for example, like Shaul Yisraeli responded to Kibya in 1953. He said, no, Nikamah is holy, right? That this was a holy act, right? Where Ariel Sharon said about Kibya oh, no, it was necessary, right? Yisraeli says, no, it wasn't necessary. It was holy. That is, in a sense, much more dangerous than Kahanism, in my view. Mm-hmm.
1: It's interesting that theology, religion gets... Gets Kahana off the hook in one other place as well, which I found in the book, which is in the race section. Kahana, you know, one of the one of the rhetorical moves that he pulls is that he, everyone else becomes racist; he's not the racist. Which, by the way, it's usually a good sign that you're a racist, but whatever. Exactly, no racists
0: say they're not racist, man.
1: Right, uh, but the 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 way he does it, which is actually kind of interesting conceptually, is the more that the separ- the difference between a Jew and a non-jew is not a race position. It's not a class position. It's not a it's not a, even a behavior position. It's a theological category. Then you're kind of off the hook, right? The Jew is ontologically, theologically a different character. And then anyone else who insists on blurring that distinction, and then winds up with any measure of difference between themselves and others, winds up looking like a racist. Yeah,
0: I mean, he he makes that argument about Abba Ibn by by saying that secular Zionism is racism because what right, if if you don't believe that God gave the land to the Jewish people, then what right do you have to be here? There are other people that live here. Now, it's a kind of clever, it's a clever move.
1: It's clever, right.
0: On the other hand, it's also something that one can refute in all kinds of ways, but something that is that should be a bit of an aha moment. Like, okay, yeah, okay, we don't believe in God. We don't believe that God gave the Torah to Moses. We don't believe that God gave the land to Jewish people. So what is the real justification for why we're here? Like what, you know, what is it rooted in other than a a belief that this is ours because we believe it's ours. And then the other people could say, well, this is ours because we believe it's ours. And then you kind of stuck. Now, You know, Kahana says, I just believe God gave the land of Israel to the Jewish people, so it's not about race. Now, he's being disingenuous there, too, for all kinds of reasons, right? And I think race is really ultimately what undermines his career in Israel, because he's importing American racial categories into the Israeli situation, which is very, very different. And, for example, the Israeli Black Panthers, who he saw as being a potential partner for him against the white Ashkenazi elite who he thought were like the American liberals the Israeli Black Panther said like screw you we're actually in solidarity with the American with the Israeli Arabs too
1: that's right and you're and you're white Kahana. and right
0: you're and you're white exactly yeah. so the whole thing ended up triangulating and collapsing as a result of that because he
1: couldn't really reconceptualize his notion of race in Israel Yeah, and for what it's worth, I mean, this is just anecdotal, but I do know some um, prominent Orthodox leaders in American Judaism who were close to Kahana when he was in America and disconnected from Kahana when he went to Israel precisely because he thought what he was doing was kind of connecting, that that there was an obvious connection between these two stories of this fight against liberalism, the searching for particularism. But once it shows up in Israel, it's just naked racism. (laughs) Any language of Jewish pride when it actually gets attached to a nation state becomes you know as you talk about in the book um becomes some measure of, uh, of supremacy
0: a lot of orthodox rabbis and non-orthodox rabbis were very sympathetic to kahana's war against intermarriage in america in the 70s and one of the first things that he does when he gets to israel is he tries to you know propose legislation forbidding jewish arab marriage in israel right in other words and yet, somehow, people felt that was something actually very dissonant about that. In a sense, he's being consistent. Jews shouldn't marry non-Jews, right? Now, it's different when you're talking about it when Israel is a minority and when Israel is a
1: majority. And it's different when you're talking about a desire to voluntarily construct an identity that is countercultural and other versus when you're trying to use the mechanism of a state to police and to prosecute that. I mean, I'll give you another example to this effect. A number of years ago, when Ishai Rosenzwein Adiofir's book, Goy, came out, um, a book about kind of the intellectual history of how Jews describe and depict the other, depict the non-Jew. I got a call from someone, a kind of prominent Jewish leader, and we, we did a book event in New York. I got a call from a prominent Jewish leader who said, it is offensive that you use the word goy in a marketing email. I said, well, wait a second, it's the title of the book. They said, it doesn't matter, it is a slur against non-Jews. And it was a little bit of a moment of realizing that this is one of the very untenable places where Jewish liberalism finds itself in, which is, increasingly, especially in the current political climate, it's really hard to talk about any version of Jewish particularism without it being depicted as racist. So Jews can get out of this by saying they're theological categories. But those of us who don't want to describe them as theological categories are stuck kind of between a rock and a hard place here. All right, let me ask you the last big question. This is the big one. This is the thing that frustrated me. So I'm persuaded, Shaul, that as a kind of intellectual history of American Judaism, and its political challenges, I'm with you. All those categories that you listed, liberalism, race, communism, Zionism, I forgot the fifth one again.
0: Radicalism, you keep forgetting forgetting
1: that one. So I'm persuaded that that tells a good story, a big story of the kind of poles through which American Judaism has tried to navigate itself through the past half century. I'm a little bit frustrated of of the fact that it travels through Kahana. Now I know this is a book about Kahana, so I get it. But here's my critique. So remember when Arendt, when she really goes after Eichmann in Eichmann in Jerusalem, her critique boils down to Eichmann's shabbiness. He's shabby. It's not that he was a bureaucrat and he wasn't making decisions. It's just like you're going to construct a whole theological worldview and ideology that routes through this schlump, this loser, right? That's what she's basically, she's in essence embarrassed. <laughs> for the Jewish people that the great antithesis, the enemy that they construct, as Hausner says on tri- the trial, you know, you are the encapsulation of a theological principle that runs from Pharaoh to Haman to the present. Just like you, this guy. And I got to say, like, it's not that I think that Kahana was irrelevant, like some of your interlocutors. It's not that he's just a thug, and I'm not embarrassed by him. I'm just like, Not that impressed by him. I felt like he draws so much of his strength from those he is attacking and those his criticism. And maybe Kahana is basically like the great Jewish troll of the late 20th century. So tell me I'm wrong. Tell me that Kahana really matters without just being kind of a troll in this story.
0: This is the way I see him. In a way, you can make the same claim as to how Gershom Sholem understands Shabtad Tzvi. I mean, this guy, Shabtad Tzvi is a pretty pathetic figure. He really was, right? And yet Sholem is saying that he is the quintessential heretic that influences everything after him. And arguably, he becomes the repository of everything before him. He becomes, for Shalom the centerpiece of Jewish history. I think for me, Kahana is a kind of American version of Shabtai Tzvi. I think that he becomes a kind of American and Israeli heretic, in, in political heretic. And yet, and this is true with Shabtai Tzvi as well, there's something weirdly savant-like about him. He somehow was able to intuit, not because he was brilliant and not because he was learned. He had a way of putting his finger on a certain element of hypocrisy. And hypocrisy exists everywhere. It exists in every movement, right? A certain element of hypocrisy in the American Jewish project and in Zionism, and then using that for his own opportunistic benefit. But the reason why I think he's not like an Eichmann character is there was something strangely, intuitively insightful about the way he saw the problems and the challenges of the contemporary issues of his day. And I tried to tease that out in the book. And again, you don't necessarily, you know, have to agree with his solutions or even necessarily his larger description, but I think he had an ear for hypocrisy, his own as well, right? You know, he had an ear for hypocrisy and I think it's worth listening to that as we kind of move forward because it's very easy, I think liberalism is in particular susceptible to this, but I think other ideologies as well, to really function without quite exploring and examining its own weaknesses. And I think it kind of helps us do that. I think radicalism helps liberalism do that. If they weren't at war with each other, they would say, you know, I look, I think Malcolm X brought Martin Luther King to say, you know, actually there's something to what he's saying. And toward the end of his life, King started to actually become more sympathetic to what Malcolm was saying. I sometimes describe him, and this is going to age me, and maybe you won't even know the reference, but there was a cartoon called Mr. Magoo back in the 60s. And Mr. Magoo was like a nearsighted person, right? And he couldn't see where he was going, but he always ended up getting where he needed to be. And I think that Kahana had that quality where he was fumbling along, he didn't know where he was going, but somehow he ended up putting his finger on something. And I will say, right. Uh, <laughs> I actually saw David Hartman that way too. David Hartman was able to get up at a seminar of Hebrew University Talmud professors, and he would flail back and forth and you didn't know what he was doing or what he was talking about. But at the end of the day, when he sat down, he put his finger on something that everybody missed in the sugi. There was a, an ability to do that that I think that Kahana had as well.
1: Well, I think the great service that you're giving us is that those of us who don't mourn Kahana and certainly don't miss him, now <laughs> don't have to read Kahana anymore. They can read Magid and Kahana but to understand that insight, and also to be able to decide that as a person can be relegated to a dustbin of history.
0: I just want to reiterate: there's no comparison. Anyone in that comparison, Vicky, you know. But of but course. I think that was part of David Hartman's greatness is somehow he able he was able to see something that all of the scholars seem to just gloss over.
1: Well, thanks very much for listening to our show. And special thanks to our guest this week, Professor Shaul Magid, author of Mer Kahan of the Public Life and Political Thought in American Jewish Radical from Princeton University Press, now available. Identity crisis is a product of the Shalom Harbin Institute. It was produced this week by David C. Kalman and edited by Joelle Fredman with assistance from Miri Miller and Shalhebitt Schwartz and music provided by SoCalled. Transcripts of our show are now available on our website, typically a week after an episode airs. To find them and to learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute you can visit us online at shalomhartman.org. We really want to know what you think about the show. You can rate and review us on iTunes to help more people discover the show and you can write to us at identitycrisis at shalomhartman.org. You can subscribe to our show everywhere podcasts are available. We'll see you next week, and thanks for listening.